For full transcripts, translations, content notes, and resources from this episode, follow along with us on our show notes at queensmemory.org. This is the Queen's Memory Podcast, a selection of personal histories from the borough of Queens in New York City. This podcast comes to you from the Queen's Memory Project, based in Jamaica, Queens, at the Queen's Central Library. I'm Natalie Milbrook, Director of Queen's Memory, where we record and preserve contemporary history across the borough. We grow our archives by collecting oral histories, photos, and mementos shared with us by community members. Local volunteers who train with Queen's Memory staff facilitate and record our oral history interviews. We feature oral histories from our archives so we can reflect on and engage with the histories we listen to and tell one another. How do we carry each other's stories? What shapes our personal and family histories? How did we get to the neighborhoods where we live? And where are we in relation to each other's histories? As part of New York City, Queens has long been a point of entry to the United States. Thinking about the borough in this way, we searched through our archives to gather stories of migration for this first season of the Queen's Memory Podcast. These stories cross continents and move through decades of the past century. We share these oral histories to reflect on the histories of this borough, of this country, and of ourselves. I came in H4 visa. In that particular visa, you can't work. Uh, you're not allowed to work. He got me to fill the application form for him for the United States. And I also filled one for myself. Not knowing at the time that when you got a visa, you had to use it within six months. One day, the inspector walked in and found out my husband didn't have a license with his own name. For our second episode, we consider paperwork, the relationship between documents and the day-to-day. Before beginning the podcast, we'd been listening to stories in our archives of applying for visas, school enrollment, and work authorization. We began to think about how these documents become part of migration and of deciding who goes where. We put this episode together to give thought to the different administrative processes instituted in coming to the U.S. and to the bureaucracy involved in staying. While we listen, we want to reflect on how files and forms regulate movement in daily life. Let's listen. First, we'll hear Tara Madatherty and Christopher Bowles share stories about filing for immigration to the U.S. and the papers that marked their entrance and stay. To start, Tara Madatherty mentions the documents her and her husband came with when migrating to the U.S. in 2003 the H-4 dependent visa, and the H-1B temporary work visa. Although both visas join much longer histories of immigration law in the U.S., we're starting from the Immigration Act of 1990. Among its many effects, the act set the conditions for U.S. immigration in the 1990s and 2000s by bolstering border patrol, adjusting immigration quotas and caps, and favoring highly credentialed and formally educated applicants. By setting bachelor's degree minimums and preferences for specialized work, especially in technological fields, 
the law implemented limitations into the H-1B visa. The H-1B thus created a channel for technology companies to promote pools of labor contracts for immigrating to the U.S., which was answered in mass by information technology and consulting companies in India. As of June 2019, U.S. immigration law permits children and spouses to migrate with H-1B visa holders under the H-4 visa. However, terms of life under the H-4 visa, from employment authorization and minimum wages to access to Social Security, remain subject to changes in law. Now let's hear these first clips. I came in H-4 visa. H-4 visa is like H-1 visa is for the husband when he's uh, working here and uh, then you get the dependent visa like H-4. Uh, in that particular visa you can't work, uh, you're not allowed to work. All the time in India I was uh, working like 8 to 6 in a college, then I come back and do some uh, free tuition. So I'll have my food and I would uh, do free tuition to the kids voluntarily. So that was my kind of day. And I would teach them till 9, 9.30, then go to bed, prepare and go to bed. So that was a kind of a hectic lifestyle I had. I came here and all of a sudden I was like, um, morning I would get up and I would whatever cook or clean. And then I was sitting and uh, thinking, what will I do today? And uh, I was not very familiar with those avenues and streets and all those stuff. And I don't want to go alone and get lost somewhere. The time change, the, the what do you call it? The uh, time, uh, time, difference. time difference really matters. You, ha you don't even recognize or realize, okay, you're in a different state. I had that confusion for a, quite a while. I would say it took me six months to come over that um, time uh, frame because uh, I used to feel sleepy in the mornings and I would be awake in the night. That's a weirdo compound because night you're supposed to sleep, you're getting up and sitting in and you are, uh, you should be going around but I'll be sleeping. And then I never went out because I was always a kind of a quiet person at uh, in, in my country also. I would do my job and come back home and I had a strict parent, uh, parents like uh, they don't want me going around so I will always uh, make sure I come back by six. So I never had that uh, uh, the, the thing to go and explore the world you know. So I was kind of a quiet person so when I came here I didn't want to go alone and uh, uh, go and explore the place over here. So I was feeling so lonely I would never go out. I don't have any relatives. I don't have anyone who knows me. I know only one person, that's my husband. And he goes to work in the morning, come back in the evening. So I was hardly an alien here with no one I knew, no one to call my name. Couple of years I was kind of, can anyone call me by my name? Because I, I sooner I'm going to forget my name. That's because that was my condition. So finally I got a library card. That was the first ever, th ever nice thing which I got because I could go to library, but it took me two weeks to figure out the way to go and come back because those avenues, I don't know, it was a little confusing for me, avenues and streets. So I go a different avenue, I would get lost. Then finally, I think by two weeks, I could go and to the library and come back home. So that was a kind of big relief because then I would go there, sit and read and read. Uh, but still, life was not good because only when he comes back, I have somebody to talk with. I was I was lost. It was kind of a tough life for me, beginning two to three years. Uh, I had my kid, then again that was uh, not easy for me because uh, I never had the thing of uh, raising a girl or <laughs> raising a kid. So uh, 
yeah parents came for delivery but after that they have to go back because it was winter they can't stand here because they were kind of old so again i was like <laughs> i had doll with me and i'm like trying to figure out how to manage all those stuff so it was a tough life for me then i think then the life changed when i started working uh, it took me 6 years to get my h4 because then we apply i wanted to go back to india forever because i didn't like the place here then uh, gradually uh, somehow we applied for the green card so we had to then uh, then the my daughter was born then she was going to she was going to school and somehow we have we kept on um, okay next year next year we kept on postponing our time then uh, then by then i could i got my ead card the employment authorization card where i could work then i started working as a teacher that totally changed my perspective and then i could talk to so many people i got so many friends and uh, i'm using my uh, this is what i like uh, being active being working i lived with a couple of other fellows and uh, one of them was getting married and uh, the other guy was moving to detroit and uh, when he was thinking of going to Detroit, he used to come in and he was always complaining about the country anyway, going, let's go to America and that's the place to be. And uh, the, um, get those forums, get those uh, visa application forums. So they kind of put that job on me. So I, I got the forms and then we had the forms and uh, he used to say to me, Bones, fill that form for America. So eventually he found a girlfriend and uh, he got me to fill the application form for him for the United States. And I also filled one for myself. Not knowing at the time that when you got a visa, you had to use it within six months. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I thought this visa was good forever. I don't know any time I like. So, uh, my man, the other fellow, he got his uh, visa. And uh, he said he was going to go. I remember his girlfriend's name was Margaret. But I'm not taking Margaret with me. <laughs> Margaret, she's not going. <laughs> So he went, and uh, <clears throat> by train, or yeah, train to from Toronto to New York. Well, no, he was going to Detroit. Oh, oh but to me, Detroit. for my part, I uh, I came later. I had my visa, and I just decided to go over to some. Adding to visa applications and work permits. We'll listen to Chun Hee Kim and consider how paperwork functions in daily life in the U.S. With this in mind, we also ask, what support exists for navigating government systems? And how do law and bureaucracy govern life in the United States? Let's listen closer. My husband worked grocery stores then. He, he could you know, open his own small business the candy store in Barakoe. One day, we had a problem because uh, there's a, you know, the game, the, the game machine. 
mm-hmm. the small, you know, candy store. Pinball? Yeah, machine. But uh, he didn't apply for the license oh, okay. with his name. So he used, you know, the previous owner's name. Mm-hmm. So he just, you know, delayed, delayed, put us put away. Yeah. Or oh, next month, next month. The previous owner's name is the same King mm-hmm. and Chun. First, first word of the first name was the same. Mm-hmm. That's why, you know, he didn't go right away after, you know, he you know, got that store. But at the last, the inspector just, you know, all of a sudden came, walked in and found out my husband didn't have a license with his own name. Mm-hmm. So he was summoned. Uh-huh. But the, he was a self-employed. He didn't have any employees, so he could not, you know, go. So he asked me to go to Brooklyn, you know, the, some government, you know. Is it down, downtown Brooklyn? Downtown Brooklyn. I went. I talked to, you know, one you know, gentleman. He mm-hmm. said, we have to pay for the penalty. Mm-hmm. Each day, $175. So it was almost... Uh, Ten thousand a week, you know. Yeah. Almost ten thousand dollars. So that time, my salary was very small, mm-hmm. and his business was not good enough. So we had to really, you know, live, you know, month to month. So we didn't have any you know, extra money to pay for it. So I said, I just you know talk to him, my you know situation. This, 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 this. But uh, he said I had to. We had to pay. Okay. And then it was lunchtime. He just walked away. I didn't give up. And uh, after you know he walked away out of the building, I went to you know the other guy. He looks you know from um, Haiti. He looks his nationality like. Mm-hmm. And uh, he looks, he looks like uh, around the sixties. So I just you know, cried, cry, 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 cry. He just you know, looked at me, mm-hmm. just you know, look at me, and I cried. And at last he said, "Oh, what can I do to stop?" tears from your pretty eyes. <laughs> what can I do? So I just smiled. Uh-huh. Because, you know, the wording from his mouth was so poetic. <laughs> he said, he just looked at me, you know, so, with a so warm, you know. All of a sudden, I just, you know, laughed. He said, that's it. Uh-huh. So, how about you just pay $250. Can you pay that? He said, of course, of course. Mm-hmm. I can pay that. Mm-hmm. So now, are you happy? <laughs> yes, I am. So I cannot forget that, that guy mm-hmm. until I close my eyes. He saved me, you know. He just said, can you pay $250? But the first guy said, 
almost $10,000. So I was so happy and I liked you know, to dance in on the street. You know. So it was the most you know, impressive thing happening in New York. Thank you for listening with us on the Queen's Memory Podcast. Visit our show notes blog at queensmemory.org. There you'll find full transcripts and written translations of this episode, and more to listen to from our archives. We've also added reading recommendations from Queen's Public Library's collections, as well as resources from local community organizations. And if you want your stories to join those you heard today and become part of our archives, head to queensmemory.org forward slash participate or to our show notes to find out more. I'd like to thank our producer, Adrian Lara, and our composer, Elias Raven. A warm thank you to Ro Garrido for providing fundamental collaboration and support, and to Richard Lee and Molly Schwartz for offering their guidance and wisdom. Thanks also to the Queen's Public Library and the Institute of Museum and Library Services for hosting and funding this podcast. Finally, thank you to all the interviewees, interviewers, interns, and volunteers for collecting and sharing the stories that make this podcast possible. If you're listening with others and want to reflect together, here are some guiding questions. What documents have allowed you to go to the places you've been? What processes did you go through to get to where you are now? To start reflecting for the next episode, let's think about vehicles of movement. Trains, buses, planes, boats. Listen with us next time on the Queen's Memory Podcast.